I sat in on our legislative session last year while we were in the minority. That that meant sitting in on committee meetings while they banned books. That meant watching the House floor as they refused to bring bills to protect our rights and freedoms as they took votes to roll back voting rights, abortion rights. Now, to know that we're going into session with a majority and we're going to see all of that be the opposite, that we are going to protect people's rights and freedoms, that we're going to fight for public education. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Amy Friedman, is the executive director of the Virginia House Democrats. She just led that campaign committee to their very good showing in Virginia's elections. Amy has worked her way up in different parts of the country as a field organizer, organizing director, and campaign manager before this most recent role. If you're interested in how she built her career and what she did in the Virginia state legislative elections, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Amy Friedman at Virginia House Democrats. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Amy, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Amy Friedman. I am currently the executive director of the Virginia House Democrats. I'm a born and raised Virginian. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. I've worked on campaigns for about the last 10 years, mostly in organizing. I came up through field. I worked all over. I worked in Kentucky, in Iowa, in Georgia, in Michigan before joining the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee where I worked with state legislatures across the country, including here in Virginia in 2019. I worked at DigiDems in the 2022 cycle uh, before coming back here to fight for my home state again. What's it like growing up in Roanoke? I love Roanoke. When I was growing up there, um, it was Virginia just overall was a lot more conservative, but it is a beautiful place. It's right in the heart of the mountains. I love going back there now. What was your family like? Was it political? Not terribly. We certainly talked a a bit about politics, not particularly. I know you were a good student in high school because you don't randomly go off to Harvard, but what did you study there? What took you to that particular school? I studied history there, and I was lucky enough to be kind of a researcher on different things. And I think that's certainly part of what brought me to politics was just being a, a student of American history. And, you know, that saying the things that we don't learn, we repeat. And sometimes the things we do learn, we repeat. I studied history, I studied English, and yeah, certainly loved my time there. What was the first real job in politics for you? 
I was an organizer for Allison Lundergan Grimes in Louisville, Kentucky. One of my favorite jobs I ever had. What made it such a good job? I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know really what organizing is. I, I certainly didn't, especially when you're kind of coming up in politics. Uh, you you have this idea of like the West Wing or or whatever it may be, or Veep, depending on your how you feel about it. And then you start organizing and it's just kind of this incredible feeling to be able to go out there and talk to people and hear what's important to them and talk about what's important to your candidate and be sure people know about the election, be sure the campaign knows what people are saying, really empower people on the ground who are going to have the biggest impacts in their community to take on responsibility, to continue to grow their community and that organization long after you leave. It's just really powerful work. It sounds like you went to people's doors and talked to them about politics in that campaign. And it's an experience I had in college canvassing for a perk. It was a notable one for me, just uh, that routine of going to talking to so many different types of people and kind of getting a sense for them in person. What was it that you took from it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I took so much from it and I think I've taken so much from it you know, being lucky enough to have done the work in a lot of different places all across the country. And I think things are very different everywhere you go, but things are also often very much the same, that people are trying to make ends meet, that the kitchen table issues really are the issues everywhere, that we should be in the business of trying to make people's lives better, right? And so understanding what people are struggling with, what they need, and what issues are most important to them is is always going to be important. Usually what happens in politics is one thing leads to another. Did that particular first job lead to something else for you? Yeah, that's certainly true. Some of the folks that I've worked with in Kentucky went on to work for Hillary Clinton's Iowa caucus campaign. So I was able to join that team pretty early on the ground. I was in Iowa for almost a year and that certainly kicked off a lot. What do you remember from Iowa? What do you take away? Gosh, I remember a lot from Iowa. That is kind of a quintessential political experience, going there, working the caucus, talking to people about your candidate, about the caucus itself. They're used to it, right? So whereas in some places where you go in Kentucky or even back in 2017 in Georgia, people aren't used to having somebody knock on their door and talk to them. In Iowa, you may get grilled by somebody, you know, and so you have to be ready to kind of answer every question and speak on behalf of your candidate in a way that is definitely different, but was was exciting as well. In those caucuses, it's always a little bit of a family affair because you have the other campaigns that you might also, in some some cases, sympathize competing with you. Did you feel torn? What was the feeling around the campaign there in the caucus? Yeah. I mean, certainly it was obviously a while ago now and primaries are always, it's exciting to talk to people about the issues in a way that we know that we're all kind of trying to get to the same place and we might just have a different roadmap to get there. And so there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of conversation. It's very different than running in a general election where the people that you're running against, obviously, you you usually have at least a couple of things where you profoundly disagree with them. What took you back to Virginia after that? I worked briefly in Virginia in, in 2016 as well. There's nothing like doing this work for you know the place that you've called home. And so I think especially at the state legislative level, 
seeing the impact, seeing the movement in 2017 and wanting so badly to come be part of getting that over the line and in 2019 and then seeing the work that was done with the majorities. It's uniquely exciting to to do things at home. You were kind of moving up in politics. You went from field staff to organizing director to campaign manager, moving into national organizations. Can you sort of trace your career and how you're growing as a political operative? Sure. As you said, I started as an organizer and then I was able to manage some folks. I, I was the out of Commonwealth director for Virginia, and that became an organizing director for D.C. and Maryland. And then I was John Ossoff's congressional organizing director in 2017 for that special election, and then a campaign manager. And then with the DLCC, I was able to be deputy national field director and then national field director. Field is an interest. I, I love field. My heart will always be in field. But when you work in any specific department, you always hit a point where you have to kind of start to think about where you might start to go kind of more laterally or how you can start to grow other skills. And so I, I have been able to do a lot of that again here at home, which which has been great. So in 2019, as a kind of advisor to the campaigns on the House and Senate side, was able to do a lot more with campaign managers and with messaging and things of that nature. And then of course, in, in my role now, that's was a huge part of, of what I did was all of the, you know, messaging, budgeting, all that stuff. What do you think actually makes a difference in a state legislative campaign? What sort of activities, expenditures, choices are the critical ones? It's a long list. I think I think everything, you know, done well can have an impact. I think obviously the kind of lower down on the ballot that you get, the more that field really can have an impact. There's the famous Shelley Simons race here in Virginia where it was a literal tie, pulled pulled the name out of a film canister that determined who was going to control the House of Delegates. But the message is incredibly important. You have to be talking in a way that resonates and really speaks with voters the way that candidates matter. (laughs) Candidates matter a great deal. The work that they're doing, their story, the way that we tell their story. And to that same end, I mean, resources matter. Resources matter a ton. And that's one of the things that makes Virginia so different is being in off off your election, we're able to do things like go on TV in the DC media market and run robust digital programs and do a lot of things that other state legislative races aren't always able to do in a crowded on your market. Everything can have an impact. I think it's just kind of a matter of which pieces, which dials you turn to really get people over the line. How did you land the job at the House Caucus? I saw it on a job board and I applied. <laughs> And what was the state of the caucus when you were given the job? Who worked there? How big was it? What were you taking over? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's you know common in any year-over-year organization that it kind of accordions, right? So there were a few incredible team members already here on the ground that I was able to just dive in and start working with. Obviously, our legislative leadership is incredible, and I am um, really thankful to have worked with them during my time here. And then it was right out of the frying pan into the fire. We were hiring up for the kind of campaigns team. We, we grew a lot over the course of, of the on year in addition to our, our legislative session. So we just dove right in. Well, what are the responsibilities of the executive director? So one of the things that is unique here in Virginia is the executive director does oversee both the legislative side and the campaign side. Obviously in an on year, it is very significantly about 
campaigning. So I, I oversaw our campaigns and oversaw our legislative session. A lot, and there's also just obviously member services. We have now, as of uh, a few weeks ago, 51 incredible members. So it's just being sure that folks have what they need so they can get constituents what they need as well. What was the plan? You come in, you have this organization. How familiar were you with it? And what sort of actions did you start off by taking? The business of governing is incredibly important. And I started about six weeks before our, our legislative session began. So that was a huge top priority going into it, being sure people had what they needed, being sure that we were going to be able to communicate what we were and weren't able to do, given that we were in, in the minority, and then just preparing for the campaigns. So being sure we had candidates in all of our top seats, being sure that we were getting those folks what they needed, staffing the campaigns up, staffing the caucus up, starting to think about wider messaging. Resources are incredibly important, raising as much money as humanly possible. So when you were doing that kind of planning and staffing up, who are you talking to? Who is in the room for decision-making besides yourself? I work incredibly closely with now Speaker-designee Don Scott. Um, so we we you know worked very, very closely together. And how is Don as a campaign strategist? He's the best. What makes him the best? I'm really grateful for the risks that we were able to take together and the ways that we were able to push to really think about. There was always a focus on what we need is 51. And there were times where it seemed like this is this was our first year on our new maps. I think that's something that a lot of folks forget because uh, everybody else had that last year. We were basically we were running as data driven a program as possible while understanding that the data that most campaigns use, which is how did we perform in the last few cycles, we didn't really have. And so, yeah, I mean, Speaker Scott does an incredible job motivating all of us, all of the people around him, the staff, the team, and was yeah, was certainly in, in every conversation, every decision. So when you talk about being data-driven, what resources, consultants, data are you talking about in order to make the kind of strategic and tactical decisions that you need to make? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the big picture data. We partnered with Clarity Campaign Labs for our polling and did three rounds of polling, which I think was, was more than the caucus had done in the past. And we also partnered with Blue Labs Analytics to do our scoring and our modeling. I think usually we would kind of pick an either or and have, have one team do all of it, but we wanted as much data as possible, as many experts in, in the room as possible, helping us make these choices. And so there was that macro data, but there was also micro data. We, for the first time, um, and this is something our Campaign chair Dan Helmer worked very hard on as well, putting together an MOU for all of our candidates that said, here is what we think it's going to take to win. If you are in a top seat, you have to be ready to do, you know, X hours of call time, X doors a week, all of these pieces. And we treated that as data as well. You know, are the candidates doing the the marginal work that we're going to need to, to get over the line and just made decisions with kind of as, as clear a focus as possible. Did it feel like high stakes to you? Yes. <laughs> yes. Were you nervous in that role? I mean, I don't mean in a bad way, but like keyed up because in a certain way, it's the election. It's one of the elections that really have national eyes on it that's local like this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How much was the governor 
part of your thinking in how you planned the campaign. Clearly, national reporting often viewed it through this lens of here's a guy who would love to be president. His first thing he's got to do is get the legislature on his side, show that the way that he's messaging on things like abortion and things that got him into the office would work to turn the the legislature fully his way. How much did you guys think about that? He obviously was making a very real play. And he was almost doing a victory lap in October saying that he'd cracked the code on abortion. And so we, you know, he also, we were always very aware that he had absolute unlimited funding, that he was going to do his best to try and conceal his extremism and have that be the message of the candidates on the ground. Yeah, it was something that we were aware of. When you're talking to the campaigns themselves, which it sounds like you helped them staff to some degree, Mm -hmm. right? When you're talking to the campaigns, what were you hearing? For someone who hasn't sat in that role, what's the intelligence that you're getting back? What did the trajectory of the campaign feel like as time went on? Yeah, we were in, I mean, very close contact with with the campaigns. And, you know, I'm very lucky. Everyone at the caucus is incredible. So we we have an incredible campaigns director, communications director, digital director, finance director. Our goal was always to provide a really high level of service so we could hear as much as possible. But we were so we were in constant communication and, and it certainly evolved over time the same way that the needs of the campaign did, right? So from fundraising more into field, but um, we did push our candidates to be on the doors as much as possible so we could know what messages were resonating with people and what was sticking. It was clear, you know, people, the the threat of um, Republicans banning abortion was no longer theoretical. It was incredibly real. It was real across the country. They made it very clear that it was real here at home. That feedback loop is incredibly important. And we put a lot of focus on ensuring that we were able to hear hear what people were saying and adjust where we needed to. When you talk about an issue like abortion, there's probably some tension between the general message going out and district-specific message, because some districts are going to be less pro-choice, let's say, than others. Did you have to vary that message by candidacy to any degree? It's really simple. And, and we're, we had a great partners in Planned Parenthood and some other partner organizations helping drive the message. But regardless of how strongly people may feel about abortion, it's very clear that people do not want politicians in their doctor's office. This The decisions of whether and how to have a family, that's not something that people want politicians legislating. Some people do. Mostly Democrats don't, but it does vary by district. Yeah, I think it, it, it varies somewhat. And and so there there's, again, obviously some nuances to the message in different places. But by and large, you know, this is something people feel very strongly about. Do you think that absent that uh, Supreme Court decision and putting this in a, such a real way on the ballot that you would have still had the results that you got? There's no way to know different counterfactuals. Obviously, a thousand things could be different, but that decision changed everything. Certainly. Were there things that you tried as far as messaging that the feedback came back? This isn't something that's working. 
Not necessarily. I think the only thing that I would say was potentially different is, again, partially because of our you know new maps, we had a, a huge number of new candidates and people that we needed to be sure voters were getting to know and understood who they are and what they stand for. So we we did kind of need to make the decision to be sure that there was more than we put a lot of um, stock into being able to double track. So being able to have, you know, both a positive and a negative message going at different times or a more issue-based message with a more bio-focused message. And I think that was was really important. And certainly something that resonated with people was being able to, you know, have that that multi-pronged approach. You, you talked about using two different firms to help you with the analytics and the polling. What did you do with the results of that information? How do you change resource allocation in response to what you're getting in that data? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is really about just testing messages, you know, and being sure that we are the thing we're saying is the thing we know is is going to resonate. And the rest was just informing conversations, being sure that we had an understanding of how we were communicating with campaigns, what was most important. Obviously, it, it was a big map, so we we did have to make decisions about where to allocate our resources. But our goal was always to kind of provide as much information to the campaigns as well so that they could make the best decisions kind of regardless of, of what we may or may not have been able to do. End of the day, how many of the districts were really competitive? Our battlefield was about 20 races. Again, that was because we had new maps. And so we didn't want to take our eye off one that was that we thought felt safer and then find out in October when it was too late in, in either direction. So it's it's hard to say how large that field will be in two years, but that was certainly the number of races we we had to keep our eye on for, for the full cycle. How many of those did you have to win? We had to win about half of those. It was, I think, 11 of the 20. Tell me about that subset. You're intensively watching these. You probably are staffing them more, spending more there. Did it change over time? Were you Were you seeing things go up and down? Did you have that intelligence? What was the plot? Sure. And I think so of that 20, there were probably, depending on the time of the cycle, seven to 12 that were that we knew were going to be a little bit closer. Our goal was to play for all of them because things can change on a dime. The goal had to be laser focused on 51. But if you're only playing through 51, that is that is far too risky a game. We would have daily, twice daily constant conversations about where each of those campaigns were. We would run through every campaign at the beginning of the day. We would run through every campaign at the end of the day. We would do deep dives of the campaigns every Saturday just to be sure that both in terms of our resources, but also in terms of all of the work that the campaigns themselves were doing, it was just as, as tight as possible to be sure we weren't taking anything for granted. If you ask people about House or even Senate caucuses around the country, a lot of them are not particularly well run we're not as strong as we could be, if you hear the chatter, I guess. I've heard yours was well-run. If you're advising someone else in that role in another place, what does it take to do this well? Well, I think that it, it is incredibly hard work. Thank you for, for the compliment. I can't speak to anyone else's team, but I think a lot of that is 
also the support of the team that we had here and of partners, people taking the stakes of it incredibly seriously. And I can't speak to the gubernatorial years, but being able to run full program. You know, some of our races were resourced to the tune of $2 million. And so I think that in other places, you know, we need to, and I'm very passionate about state legislative work. I, I worked at the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee for several years. And so I think a lot of it is being able to give the people who are are in the role of myself and of my team here at the caucus, kind of the tools and resources that they need to be fully professionalized. A lot of the things we did were unique and were things we did for the first time. We had an incredible kind of caucus level digital program, but caucuses are a lot of moving pieces. It's a lot of members, it's a lot of races, it's a lot of strategy. And so, so yeah, I would say that the team around you is, is incredibly important and going to be your best resource. But I would also encourage anybody that wants to see kind of strong caucus teams to invest in that, to be sure that, that people can run high-level operations. I bet it's a lot of moving pieces. One of the kinds of moving pieces must be the management of all of partners, right? That ranges from the DLCC to, you mentioned Planned Parenthood, but lots of other progressive groups in the state. Who are the crucial partners in Virginia? Well, Virginia is also very unique at this level of the ballot because we can fully coordinate. It's total open coordination laws, which is crazy to a lot of people. And so we were really lucky. I mean, all of the partners were were just crucial this year. We have a C4 table, and it's really almost too many to name the people who were out on the doors running paid field program, the people running digital, the people running mail, and really working in lockstep with us and with um, all of our campaigns. Who, to- who runs the C4 table in Virginia? Right now, David Aldridge. For people who don't know what a table like that does, explain it just briefly. Yeah, absolutely. So again, there's a number of partners, both statewide and national, that have obviously a vested interest in ensuring that we gain and retain majorities. Each of those organizations, while we have a shared goal, they have individual goals as well. So Planned Parenthood obviously is specifically focused on abortion rights. VEA is focused on education. Vote Vets is focused on electing veterans. And so within all of that, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen. So there's a, kind of a table of partners that come together to be sure, you know, if 10 of those organizations all want to knock doors for the same candidate, we're not knocking on somebody's door 10 times in the same day. Or if all of those organizations have X amount of dollars to spend, we're allocating those resources in a way that ensures kind of maximum efficiency and maximum effect. Another category of partners, I'm curious if they played much in Virginia, are these groups that are kind of national, but focused on getting Democratic majorities or moving out of super minority status in different states, they target their money into state legislative campaigns where they think it's important. Were they, that's like the sister district type of group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Who did you see working successfully in Virginia in that category? Yeah, we certainly worked closely with Sister District. The States Project is a, a huge partner of ours. So a lot of those organizations. How do you manage that? Is that done through the table? Is that done with you? Well, like I said, it's a lot of moving pieces. It's just a lot of organization, honestly. In parallel, obviously, to what's going on in the House is the Senate in in the state. To what degree did you work together with the Senate caucus? We worked very closely together. We quite literally share an office. We 
worked as closely together as possible on in field in particular. Obviously, you know, we had a coordinated field effort that was somewhat different this year where we wanted to ensure that all of our field staff showing up to work were there for their specific candidate. And so there were places where even though there was a top Senate campaign and top House campaign fully overlapping, they had their own teams that that coordinated closely to be sure that kind of again everything was in in lockstep. So we talked, I mean, all day, every day, just to be sure. And that's everything from field to messaging to targeting to be sure that again, maximum efficiency and that we were all singing from the same songbook. How many of their races were the crucial ones? Approximately. They had uh, seven. And were they mostly or mostly overlapping with your crucial ones or, or often in different places? It was a real mix. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so how did you, did that create any tensions in resource allocation at all? Well, resource allocation, the campaigns were fully separate. So all of the resource allocation from the House was, you know, directed from the House, the Senate was directed from the Senate. But we had a really strong, again, kind of coordinated effort for any shared staffing or shared field or anything to that nature and just kept strong, open communication. What else should people understand about your work and what you did this cycle? I would just say that state legislatures are incredibly, incredibly important. And I know that especially as we gear up for a year where there's obviously an incredibly crucial presidential race, the national House and Senate, there's always going to be, you know, races that have a huge impact and huge number of resources to be out there to be communicating to be what all all that the top of the ticket is. But the place where the decisions are really going to be made that affect your day-to-day life, that's going to be at home. I would encourage everybody to, to get involved in their their local races, their state legislature. I think that's the main thing I'd want people to know. What surprised you the most about this job? There was, there was something to be surprised by, you know, every day. I think just like how, I mean, number one, I think are, are candidates. I mean, the people who raise their hand to run, it is not easy. And working on campaigns is not easy, but there is nothing I can imagine like being a candidate, like being the person whose name is on the ballot. And our folks and the Republicans threw some just egregious stuff, and, you know, terrible. There was there was an ad that they had against one of our candidates that literally opened, you are all going to die. And it was like this crazy crime attack ad, too many um, things to name. And our folks just never wavered. They got out there, they knocked more doors than, than you would believe. And just kept at it. So I think that was one of the things that really, I don't know, surprised, but inspired me the most was how hard, how hard all of our candidates worked for their community. Do you think there's a difference between how the Democrats campaigned and how the Republicans campaigned? I mean, you talk about an egregious crime ad. Are we running egregious ads also? Is it basically regular politics or do you see the sort of corruption in the Republican Party that we see nationally in the Virginia situation? I mean, I, I certainly see a difference. Right? And I'm, I'm, of course, I'm biased, but I mean, they would literally run mailers lie after lie after lie. And then the citation was because a candidate was, quote unquote, endorsed by the Democratic Party. Another just key difference this year is obviously there's an importance to ensuring folks understand the, you know, that nationally what you're seeing of the Republican Party is is true of the Republican Party everywhere, but it has to be local. And so I think that that's another thing that 
our candidates did very well was just ensuring that people understood who they were, their ties to the community, the impact of these things on their community, while the other side was just kind of throwing a lot of kitchen sink fear mongering. For people who are more interested in the results in how we're governed than in maybe the campaigns and how they run, what do you think are the consequential differences between Democratic control of the legislature and Republican control of the legislature for the next couple of years? That's another one where it's hard to know where to begin. And that's I, to go back to kind of what surprised me is I sat in on our legislative session last year. And while we were in the minority, that that meant sitting in on committee meetings while they banned books. That meant watching the House floor as they refused to bring bills to protect our rights and freedoms as they took votes to roll back voting rights, abortion rights, gay marriage is still technically, we have to pass an amendment to legalize gay marriage here. And that's something they refused to to bring to committee. But last year, um, it was just day after day after day, a slog of, you know, we brought, I think, you know, dozens of public safety bills that were, you know, trying to ensure that violent criminals and domestic abusers couldn't have guns and over 40 education bills that would have ensured every kid had a world-class education kind of a long-winded answer because I I just remember it so acutely. And now to know that we're going into session with a majority and we're going to see all of that be the opposite, that we are going to protect people's rights and freedoms, that we're going to fight for public education. Are we going to be able to pass any laws if the governor has a veto? And we, you know, we obviously don't have the ability to override a veto. Yeah. I mean, our focus is going to be on passing legislation that will help make the lives of, of Virginians will help improve the lives of, of hardworking Virginians across the Commonwealth. And so I certainly would hope that, um, you know, we'll be able to work with the other side on that. You read, I'm sure, national reporting of, of this race. Were there any significant misconceptions that came through in that? Anything, anything in the record you can correct? I've not taken in a, a ton of it because it's it's all still pretty recent. But I think that in October, there was certainly a lot of coverage again around Youngkin's abortion message and and an idea that he had kind of cracked the code on that. I think that that's just, that's just wrong. People have made clear that they are not interested in an abortion ban and they can dress it up however, however they want. Um, but I think that people have, have made themselves pretty clear on that. There was a lot of talk that he was a pretty skillful governor in certain respects, that he was wielding power fairly effectively from a sort of faraway perspective. How would you characterize Youngkin as a governor and potential president someday, maybe? I'm not a legislator, right? I'm a staffer, but I would certainly hope that he will be someone who will come to the table on the issues that are most important come this legislative session. I obviously disagree with most everything that he would want to be putting forth had the outcome in November been different. So I can't speak to his ambitions. I don't think he'll ever have my vote regardless of the office. I'm going to hope that he comes to the table on the things that matter most. One thing that that I would love to bring into this just a little bit is a few specific candidates that you think that you'd like to highlight that were in crucial districts that held seats or won seats. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, three or four of them? 
Yeah, absolutely. I can start with Josh Thomas, who was an incredible candidate, is going to be an incredible legislator. And that is a race where the uh, the opponent in that race was caught on tape saying that he wanted 100% abortion ban. He said it. He said it more than once. Where was that race? Prince William County. Mm-hmm. A fairly purplish area, maybe? Very, yes. And that, and, you know, that was an incredibly close race. You know, there was that national issue that was the threat was very real because we had the person on tape saying what they were going to do. But then there were a lot of local issues too, right? We were talking about roads, we were talking about data centers, we were talking about everything that, that mattered to folks from kind of the national and statewide to the literal backyards of the voters. What made Josh a good candidate? He has an incredible background. You know, he's a Marine. We had a lot of incredible veterans. Michael Fagans um, is a candidate I could talk for a long time about as well. He was just really, he was incredibly dedicated and dedicated not just to, you know, the work of being out there and knocking doors and making calls and being tireless, kind of using every moment of the day, but also, again, of, of hearing people and making clear to us what what was important to to the voters that that he was talking to. Who else could you highlight? Michael Fagans down in Virginia Beach. That was such a hard fought race. Karen Greenhall was an incumbent. Um, They're one of the few kind of incumbents that they were just pouring money into and another place with some pretty ugly attack ads that that they had come out against him, just full full of lies. He's a veteran as well, a veteran of the Air Force, born and raised in Virginia Beach and just knew the community so well, you know, and knew what was most important to be talking about, what would speak to people, and the importance of being sure people understood exactly who who she was, and she ran crisis pregnancy centers. So again, that's another way that kind of the national issue of abortion was also very specific in the district, but also the importance of being sure people knew who he was and um, what he stood for as well. Give me another one in that category. Josh Cole is a delegate who was had an incredibly close race in 2017, an incredibly close race in 2019, an incredibly close race in 2021. And then again, this year was a top candidate. He is an incredible, incredible candidate because he knows exactly the importance of the work, right? Like he has done the job before. He knows the ins and outs of the issues so, so well. And that's another place where while the DC media market is incredibly expensive, so we're not going to be able to say everything we want to on TV, just talking to him, he's a pastor and a teacher and a community leader. And, and he knows, you know, that we do still need to be speaking about Nova area, we need to be talking about infrastructure, we need to be talking to people about, you know, the looming shutdown. And so just another great candidate. For you, what was the biggest heartbreak? Oh, gosh. At the end of the day, we we ultimately accomplished the goal we needed to picking a biggest heartbreak would be like picking a favorite win. I'm just incredibly thankful for the work that all of our candidates did. And there were, you know, places where we came close and where candidates worked incredibly hard. And so it's always hard to see great people not make it over the line, but it also shows us the map for what's possible as we look towards 2025 and 2027 and everything else. What's next for you? Uh, sleep for a little bit, (laughs) enjoy the holidays. Do you think you'll do another cycle of this job or will you look elsewhere for the next thing to do? 
I'm really not sure yet. Again, I think I'm really focused on ensuring that we have a successful legislative session. So in that aspect of your job kind of keeps you in, in a way that a lot of other caucus executive directors might be more vacation, but you're still pretty much part of the game. Yeah, yeah. there will be a little vacation. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think, I think everybody's earned some time to relax, but it is, yeah, that's, I mean, the, the fun never stops. We got to get right back to it. The voters gave a very clear message about what's most important. And so we're excited to get to work on that. What should I have asked you that I failed to? I can't think of anything. Maybe the only thing is how people can have an impact. I know I talked about the importance of getting involved. I would not be the like field rat that I am if I didn't really encourage people to know that and I was actually just talking to a woman yesterday we, and we did have a couple districts with fairly low contact rates. You know, you go out, you knock 50 doors, you only talk to five people, whatever the case may be. But all of those conversations really are the margin. If you were on caucus staff, you were out knocking doors. If you were a, if you were a candidate, you were out knocking doors. I went out and knocked doors. And so I think that that's just something where I think, and again, at this level of the ballot, you as an individual can have such an outsized impact that that five, ten, fifty dollar donation goes so far for candidates at this level of the ballot that that packet of doors where you're talking to five people and just even being sure you know that they know the name of the people that's running, that they know the name of their representatives, you can have such an outsized impact at this level of the ballot. So again, there's a a lot of important work that we need to get done across the country next year. I am excited for for all of that. And I would just encourage anybody out there to to go knock doors, uh, give a little money if they have it, and and try and flip or hold their their home chamber. You know, I, I realized I didn't ask you about one thing, which I do like to learn a little bit about, which is the technology that was used. If I'm talking to people in other states, they might be trying relational organizing and using particular tools for that. There's obviously whatever is underpinning your field efforts. What sort of software tools were employed by your caucus in your campaigns? That Yeah, rather than naming specific tools, just because I, th- it, I think there's a lot of great tools out there. When I started doing campaigns, there was not minivan for years. And so I think that the same is true for, you know, call time tools, right? And so like just getting candidates off of making paper calls, off of making calls, you know, God forbid, in a spreadsheet, all of those things are, you know, I think that the, I know, so I have friends who work in operations that talk about like the operations margin, that like the efficiency that you can have by saving time and data entry and all of those other pieces. So I think that I feel like it changes constantly, you know, the text tools, the relational tools, having the voter file in your pocket, I think that's so important and becoming an increasingly important part of campaigns, but also budgeting tools, call time tools, minivan and canvassing tools, all of those things are especially starting those early is so important because once folks have the system in place, it doesn't matter how much they like the new system that you're bringing in. If it's what they're used to, especially if it's what the candidate is used to, it's really hard to change. Was there any particular category of tool or particular vendor that stands out as uh, kind of a breakthrough for you or very impactful? Not necessarily. Again, I think I think increasingly just every sector of campaigns, it is becoming more digitized in a way that just like really increases efficiency. As somebody that started when everything was printed on paper, 
was data entered on, you know, pencil and then had to be put in the system. And then if you wanted to do call time, you, you know, I would, I would literally have like three flip phones in front of me and I would be dialing three different numbers at the same time. And now there's tools that do all of that, every piece of that for you. I'm excited to see what there is, you know, a year from now. Appreciate your time today. Anything else you want to say? No. Thank you for your time. That was Amy. She's at vahousedems.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.